Chapter 1, the church in the trench. Uh, you may, uh, back in the day, when, when there would be armies that would face off in battle, they would, they would have two opposing armies that find a, a clear space to have a fight and they'd come down and they'd line up and then they'd go to town. They'd see... They'd just run across and fight each other, and if you're trying to be particularly fancy, you might try and sneak around the back and uh, attack from behind. But with the invention of guns, having two groups of people standing off against each other who are just exposed to gunfire, like that wasn't a great idea. So this is where trenches came in, where trenches were that place where, um, where the soldiers could hide from gunfire where, here's my amazing wife. <laughs> where there would be trenches where they could hide from the gunfire, where they could take refuge and where they could have a look, where they could take pot shots at the enemy. Here in the trenches was where they could find solace, but also where they could hold the defensive line. So, you may remember that um, trenches were particularly important in World War I, and, and we, we probably all heard in school as we were growing up about the Anzacs who lived in the trenches. Trenches get a bad rap. They weren't particularly great places to live, but practically speaking, either being exposed to enemy gunfire or being able to hide in a trench, I'm going to take the trench. <laughs> the trench was a safe place while being a defensive position. It's where the the soldiers could uh, have a network of tunnels and trenches where they could sleep and eat and get patched up if they were injured. Trenches were the place where the infantry lived, where they were sheltered, but also where they defended the nation. They were temporary homes, places where soldiers found protection and reprieve. No one wants to live in the trench forever, but in in the battle, the trench is the base best place to be. Now, I'm sure you can see where this metaphor is going. The, the church is in the trench. Friends, right now, Jesus' church is in the trench. We're not home yet. We're still in the battle. We're protected and sheltered in the church, but we're not home yet. It's a place of solace and refreshment, but we're also on the front line. It's like home. Your countrymen surround you. There's familiar food. There's familiar songs. There's the camaraderie of brothers and sisters in arms. But we don't want to stay here. We want to go home. It's like home, but it's not really home. We're not there yet. We're in the trench. God's Church is on the front line, an outpost in enemy territory where God is making his advance in the present darkness. And we like to talk about the church from the top down, you know, from from the outside perspective. And, And that's good. It's all right. It's right to talk about the fact that Jesus wins, that Jesus has purchased his church, that God is going to triumph over all enemies, all evil. The church are the victorious, redeemed children of God who inherit divine blessings forevermore. All these things are true. But we're still in the gritty reality of the here and now. 
It's like talking about World War II. We can say, oh, the Allies won. The Axis powers lost. But man, did a lot of people lose their lives and, and to win a hard-won victory on the ground, in the fray. And, and here in the church, in the outpost of heaven, we have marching orders and we have battle strategies. We have defenses and we have wounds to tend. Today and over the next three weeks, we're looking at this church on the ground, the church in the trenches, the people of God who know that Jesus has won, but still live in the gritty reality that it's not safe outside. Sin still needs to be killed off. Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what should this trench, this church in the trenches look like? Well, chapter 2, the church is God's house. Holding that uh, trench metaphor in your mind, just put it aside for a minute, we're going to circle back around to that, but let's for a moment put that on hold and, and have a look at some more imagery of the church. The church is a temple, not this building or the fancy buildings that you might have seen that they spent decades perfecting with their architectural style. It's not the building. It's not the institution, the organization. The the church is the people of God, the called out ones. And the people themselves are the temple. The church is a temple, a house for God. Temples are this place where heaven and earth cross over Now, if you travel around the world, you'll see all over the place, people have made all kinds of different temples to serve false gods. And it's pretty common throughout history. You know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome were particularly well known for their temples that they would set up multiple temples in every city to all kinds of different gods. But why does humanity do this? Well, it's because we're designed to be worshippers. We're designed to be people who come to the temple We're designed like that. God made Adam and Eve and he put them in a garden temple, Eden. A place where God met with humanity, where he lived in intimacy with his people. And humanity was given a job. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This, this sacred space that God had made, Adam's job was to work it and keep it. The zone where God dwelt with them on earth, Adam was told to care for it and protect it. But Adam done messed up. He didn't do his job and the temple was spoiled. Sin entered in. And the sin didn't just enter into the temple itself, but it entered into humanity It entered into all humankind. And later on, God had another go at establishing a temple. Not as though he tried and failed, but there was another demonstration of what it was like to, to, to get a temple going when he started the tabernacle in the wilderness with the people of Israel. His own people who would live with him and he would go with them and he would dwell in the midst of them. The, the tabernacle, the tent temple. But they had to keep the temple clean. They had to keep it ritually pure 
to be holy. And the whole nation camped around the tabernacle in the temple, around the temple in the desert, and it was a sacred space. And, and if, as you read through the, the Old Testament in the Torah, the closer you got to the center place where God was, the more careful you had to be to be pure and to keep the place holy because that's where God was, his presence was. God was going to take them into the new promised land. He was going to go with them. But it didn't work well in the long term. They kept spoiling their purity. Sometimes they even forgot that God was in their midst. They tried to do things their own way, thinking that they knew better. They rebelled against God. But, but God wasn't surprised by this. He, 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 he used this to show the world that he both wanted to live with his people, but also that the impurity of the people, their sin, their rebelliousness, needs to be overcome. God would need to work an epic miracle in the lives of his chosen people in order to make living with them possible over the long term. So God set about to change the problem, to deal with the problem. He set about to save his people from their sins. He sent Jesus Christ into the world, who is God himself. He was born as a man and he lived in this world as a tradie in Palestine. But he didn't just live the simple life. He lived the perfect life, perfect in every way. He was obedient to his heavenly father. He was not a rebel. He was pure. He was a servant who, being sinless himself, used his own life to pay for the sins of God's people. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sins. He died to redeem us from sin. You see, you and I are sinful. Sam kind of touched on it a bit before when we prayed our our prayer of confession. We have done things that are objectively wrong. And, And I'm sorry to say, folks, that trying to do right to make up for the wrong just doesn't work. You think, think about it. Um, giving to charity doesn't make up for stealing something that's not yours. Uh, saving two lives doesn't make up for one murder. Obeying the road rules 95% of the time doesn't mean the police are going to let you off 5% of the time. We know it. If we, if we look into ourselves and examine ourselves, we'll see that we're messed up inside. We're all sinners We all need saving from ourselves. And Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus, sorry, God should punish sin. Like he did with Adam, like he did with the Israelites in the wilderness. Our our sin has earned us God's judgment, his justified punishment. But Jesus came to save his people, save his people from the punishment that they deserve. You see, God wants to live with mankind and he needs to deal with the problem that stands between us. So Jesus died in the place of sinners, taking our sin on himself. But then, in a crazy turn of events, he rose from the dead in victory. Sin is this direct cause of death and yet Jesus was able to overcome the results of sin, which is death. He rises from the dead and then in absolute gracious kindness, he gives people his own purity. He gives them his own righteousness. Having dealt with the sin debt, he now now fills their spiritual bank account with righteousness. And this is the church, those people who have received 
that salvation, who have had their sin taken away and who have received Jesus Christ. Those people who have been won by Jesus, those people who have been purchased by Jesus. They they are purified from sin, cleansed and made righteous and ready to live with God. They're ready to experience the blessedness that Adam and Eve gave up. Those people who were once unable to experience God's presence, but now through Jesus can experience God's presence. And we experience it now a little bit in the way that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and the way that the church has been transformed to be more like God. But one day we will physically dwell in his presence. And the church is described as that temple, a place where God lives. This is part of our new identity as saved people, the purified people of God. And we read before what Paul said, that we, that we were once strangers and aliens, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the temple. So there's a, we get to be the house of God, the dwelling place of God. Even though we're physically still separated from God's presence, he is near, here now by the work of his spirit amongst us. And the house of God will look and feel like a place where God lives. If you, you go visit your friend's house and you can see exposed before you what they are like. Are they neat freaks or are they messy? Are they particular or otherwise? Are they, you can see by walking into somebody's house usually whether they are wealthy or whether they're poor. You can see people's character reflected in the environment that they build around them. So when God is building a house, for a place for him to live, he's going to be building a place that he's going to be comfortable living. A place where, a place that reflects his character. He takes, because this is going to be God's house, he takes sin seriously. In God's house, there is no greed, there's no pride, there's no hate, there's no strife, there's no pain. Instead, it's replaced by love, generosity, humility, unity, righteousness, healing. But I hear you say, Samuel, have you looked around the church? Have you, have you seen the people who make up the church? There's still pain here. There's still greed. There's still pride. There's still hate. There's still sin mixed up in us, the people of the church. But that's because God's not done building his house yet. You are being built together into a dwelling place by the Spirit. You are being built. It is something that God is doing now. He is transforming us. He is changing us. He is making us into his likeness. God has rescued his people in Jesus Christ. He's given them his righteousness. He's cleared their debts and filled their spiritual bank accounts. But now he is working that righteousness into our bones. 
He's building us. He's growing us. He's shaping us into the best and most beautiful temple you'll ever see. Because Solomon's temple ain't got nothing on the temple that God is building now. God is building his church. He is hanging out with his church by his spirit. And we are looking forward to the day when the scaffolds come down and God moves in and never moves out again. So we're not perfect. We don't go looking for our perfect church. You're not going to find it this side of glory. But we're being made into that. Though we're not there yet. And so I want to I want to extend to you an invitation. An invitation to come into the church. We're not we're not saying that this is going to be the most perfect place. We but we are saying that this is the place where God lives and where God is changing people. Do you want to be part of this? Do you want to be part of God's construction project where he makes earthly people into heavenly beings? Do you want to have your sin taken away? Do you want to live with God in eternal blessedness? Do you want to be the east gate of the temple, looking forward to the coming and returning presence of God? You see, Jesus saved God's people. But when it happened, a lot, of people, a lot of God's people didn't know that God had just saved them. And so the gospel message needs to be taken out into the world. People need to be told that Jesus has dealt with your sin and you can come into his people. And so I stand here today telling you that message, reminding you of that message that Jesus died for sins. And if you want to partake in that, if you want to receive that blessing, if you want to, if you want to receive the blessings of God, You need to take hold of Jesus by faith, to receive him, to put your faith and trust in him. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's an invitation to you today, to repent and believe the gospel. Come to God hat in hand and say, I've done things my own way and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to give up the ways of the world I want to give up my sin and I want to receive the righteousness of Christ. Sam also said, we, were, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were like by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is God's church. The church in the trenches, those, those saved people of God. Chapter 3. The church protects and guards The church protects and guards. We are priests of God who protect and guard. Coming back around to the temple metaphor, I told you, sorry, the trench metaphor I told you to put aside before. Let's get back into that. We have a better idea of who these people in the trenches are. These are God's people whom God is working in. They're still full of sin, or they're still affected by sin and evil, but they've rejected We've rejected the kingdom of darkness and we're in Jesus' team. 
We're God's house on earth, an outpost of heaven. But the outpost needs to be guarded. The church is still in the trench because there are enemies. You remember when I, when I mentioned Adam and Eve and the job that Adam got? The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam was meant to make Eden flourish, to work it, but he was also there to keep it, to watch over it, to guard it. You might say, but God had just made this beautiful place for them to live. What would he need to guard it from? Well, if you've read Genesis, you will remember that there was a serpent who came into the garden. A deceiving serpent, a rebellious spiritual being. And, and although it's the fact that, God, that Adam and Eve listened to the serpent which leads to their downfall, the very fact that Adam wasn't kicking the serpent out of the garden when the serpent was questioning God you know, highlighted the, the fact that Adam wasn't doing his job. And so Adam gets replaced by a cherubim with a flaming sword who guards the way to the tree of life. And we, saw, we see a similar story of guarding the temple with the Levites and the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Levites were a clan of people who were commissioned by God to be his priests. They had proved their devotion to, to protecting God's holiness by practicing church discipline. I'm using that tongue-in-cheek because in this case, practicing church discipline meant slaughtering idolaters amongst the people of God. Moses sent the Levites to kill, to slaughter the people who were introducing evil into the midst of God's chosen people. And, and God used this as like a, a strange kind of ordination service where they were ordained to this role of protecting God's temple. And we're reminded in, in Numbers, you know, it talks about the tribe of Levi. They will be set before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and watch and, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. They were servants, but they were guards. And so, if we are the temple of God... Who guards the temple? If, if God has temples and he sets up guards, protectors, those to watch and keep it, and if we are the temple, then who watches and keeps us? Well, God does. We're reminded in Thessalonians that the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. But he also seems to do it through Jesus, who is our great high priest. Um, Paul says, I know whom I have believed, which is Jesus, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, which in this case was the, the gospel ministry that Paul had been given. And then Paul warns Timothy that he is also to do the guarding by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we've got God doing the guarding, and specifically he does it through Jesus Christ and his Spirit and us. We are temple guards. And if we're temple guards, 
Does that make us priests? Yes. Yes, it does. We are priests of God. Those who protect and guard God's sacred space. In Revelation chapter 1, it, it says that Jesus has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. So we're called to protect the sacred space, to protect the temple, protect the place where God lives. And what does that look like? What does it look like as a, for us to be priests who guard the temple, who, who keep it? Well, I've got, I've got four examples. There's heaps more, but I thought we'll stick with four so we're not here all morning. For starters, guarding the temple means not mixing the church with the world. There's more to it than this, but but one of the examples of not mixing the church with the world is that believers don't marry non-believers if they can help it. Because Paul says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But protecting God also means guarding against Guarding unity under Jesus Christ. Not creating divisions and factions. Divisions and fractures weaken the church. Paul wrote this to people who are causing these divisions. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we've got not mixing the world with the church... Uh, We've got guarding God's temple means being in unity under Jesus Christ, but we also guard against sin. God's temple fights against sin in our midst. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. And the last one I want to mention is that guarding God's temple means practicing church discipline. It's a way of guarding God's temple both by caring for ourselves and making sure we don't defect to the enemy, but it's also a way of flushing out snakes in our midst. Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, he told them not to associate with evildoers, sexually immoral or greedy, not, not people who've, who've repented from these things because otherwise you wouldn't even be able to associate with anyone in the church, but for those who are practicing these things and loving these things, He says, to judge those people, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside, but purge the evil person from among you. We practice church discipline. Now, now when we see our brother or sister going into sin, who are doing something that is is clearly wrong, or they've sinned against us, we go and tell them. We go and say, hey, you've sinned. You're doing what is evil in God's sight. And if they don't listen, we, we take a friend and we say, hey, this is really serious. And hopefully they listen and they, they repent. But if they don't, then we actually make it public to the church. This person is carrying on this way which is ungodly. And if even then they don't listen to the whole church trying to call them to repentance, we kick them out. As priests of God, we purge the evil person from among us. Hopefully this process is a reformative process that shakes people to their senses. Oh, what I'm doing here is is so serious that people are going to kick me out of the church. But God's temple needs guardian priests, and that's you and me. Each of us doing our part 
in the strength of the Holy Spirit to contribute to the holiness of the whole church. Ultimately, our great high priest Jesus is leading the way there, directing the work, making things happen, working through his Holy Spirit. But we follow along with him as as soldiers in his employment. Chapter 4. The church suffers. The church suffers. Now this, this is going to be a much shorter chapter than the others, but I thought we couldn't talk about this without talking about the fact that the church suffers. This church in the trenches is still in the trenches. We're still experiencing this world. We are the outpost of heaven, but the fullness of heaven hasn't arrived yet. We're still on the front line in the battle, suffering wounds, earning scars. But like Jesus himself, who went before us into death, now his suffering purifies us. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We go with Jesus where Jesus goes. And it's no surprise if the world is is attacking Jesus, if the world is opposed to Jesus, they're going to be opposed to God's people. And ultimately, we're not fighting against people. We're fighting against the spiritual powers. Which I will... We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're wrestling against a spiritual enemy. And sometimes we suffer in this wrestling. And that's why Paul tells his people, tells the Ephesians, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. But we've been reminded that God's church on earth the people who have not yet gone into glory, the people who are still on earth here in the, in the midst of this world are the church in the trench. We're an outpost of heaven. God is, is building his house. He's working in us. He's growing us. He's saving people out of the world. Those who would turn to him and receive his mercy will be saved. They will... But the building is still going on. It's still happening. And we still need to protect and guard the temple. And in the midst of that protection, we will suffer. But it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond anything we could imagine in this world. So let me finish here with these last words of Peter. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have purchased your people, you have won the church. We thank you, Lord.
that, that the door is open, that all those who, who hear this good news and, and come in may receive new life in Christ, that they may become part of your house. But we thank you, Lord, that you are, you're building your house, you're working in your house by your spirit, and that you are, you are desiring to live with us. Lord, please shape us and make us ready for that, for that eternal life with you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to protect the sacred space, to knowing that our bodies are temples, knowing that the church is a temple, that we would keep sin out and that we would care for and keep and, pro- and protect our brothers and sisters in Christ and help them to grow. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd help us to endure in the suffering that is before us as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would equip us and enable us to glorify you in all things. Amen.